Hi everybody, this is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This week we're doing an archive show. This one comes to us from February the 13th in 2017. Hope you enjoy it. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. Chester. I'm ready whenever you are, Mr. Dillon. All right, let's go. Hi, kids. Come on in. Come on in. Have a seat. Make yourselves at home. Glad to have you here. Come in out of the cold. Is it cold where you are? Actually, today in St. Louis, it's almost 70 degrees. We've had consistently that. I know a lot of you in the Northeast have been really socked in with cold weather. Oh, my. And snow? I have uh, friends up in upstate New York, around Patterson, New York, and Warwick, New York, and some of these small towns. Oh my goodness, I, my heart is with ya. I, I tell ya, you have my sympathy. We have had a very mild winter here, so we're grateful for that. Well, anyway, enough about the weather. Come on in, make yourselves comfortable. This is Bob Bro, and this is Boomer Boulevard. This is the old-time radio show where we actually play programs we remember from when we were kids. Why? Because we're baby boomers. Some of the shows, admittedly, we remember from television in their later incarnations, but nonetheless, we remember the shows. And tonight is no exception. We have an episode of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe with Gerald Moore that is really a good one. And, And I say that sincerely. This one's really a good one going to enjoy it. We have one of the funniest episodes of the Jack Benny Show you're ever going to hear, and he has some special guest stars on, on, on that one, and you probably already know who they are. And then we're going to follow things up with a lighthearted episode of Gunsmoke. So we have a great lineup tonight, and if you just get yourself situated, make yourselves comfortable, we're going to get started in just a few moments. 
It's time for a little Radio Noir. That's right, everybody. It's time for our Radio Noir. And tonight we have an episode of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, the very personification of uh, noir. And this one is uh, from 1951. It was originally broadcast on CBS on August the 4th. It's entitled Long Way Home. I think I'm usually pretty honest with you in my appraisal of these shows. And I'm going to tell you, this one is one of my favorites. I really like this one. I just listened to it again last night. And it's a very simple story. It, uh, it features Bill Johnstone as a fellow named Enos Harper, who you're going to meet right in the beginning. Jack Moyles plays uh, Dan, I think it's Dan Quinlan. It also has Mary Lansing, Sam Edwards, who usually has that really youthful voice. Well, here he disguises it a little bit. He's not playing a youth here. Also has Junius Matthews and Vivi Janice in the cast. It was written by Kathleen Height who a lot of times uh, writes uh, episodes that are sort of geared toward women. But this is a very simple episode. And as a result, I think, this is just my opinion, that uh, Norm MacDonald in directing it had many of the people that that Marlowe interviews in this, these actors that we just mentioned, uh, disguise their voices with accents. And it really works. At least I thought it did. And this, this episode had me kind of hanging on, on the edge of my seat the whole way through. I was really uh, invested in it, and I was really wondering what happened to this poor woman. So I hope you enjoy it. Here we go. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe from August 4th, 1951, The Long Way Home. and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road and those who travel it wind up in the gutter, the prison or the grave. There's no other end, but they never learn. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. With Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Long Way Home. The valley floor gave off the kind of heat that ate into you, stayed. I wondered why some 800,000 people voluntarily made the San Fernando Valley their home. That was their problem. My problem at the moment was to make a right turn off Riverside Drive, and I did. Four or five blocks north, I saw the name on the Redwood Post by the driveway. Mr. and Mrs. Enos Hopper. Yeah, this was it. I drove in the drive into the cool oasis, an orderly wilderness of pepper trees, palms, evergreens, and everything else I'd ever seen grown in Southern California. The house sat well back on the lot, very neat. Also redwood to match the post by the driveway. 
I got out of the car and walked across the grass toward the slightly stooped figure clipping the hedge on the far side of the lot. I didn't hear you coming. Oh, I'm sorry. I hope I didn't frighten you. I'm Philip Marlowe. Are you Mr. Harper? Oh, yes. Yes, indeed, Mr. Marlowe. I'm glad you're here. Here, uh, I'll uh, pull up this chair oh, for you. Oh, it's all right. I'll uh, get it. It's all right. I've got it now. Oh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Sit down, Mr. Marlowe. Oh, well, how about you? Well, if you don't mind, I'll keep on clipping the hedge here while we talk. I feel better doing something, you know. Oh, sure, sure. We uh, could go into the house, I guess, if you'd rather. I... Well, it bothers me to be in there now. Yeah, I expect it does. How long has she been gone, Mr. Harper? Since uh, Monday morning. Oh? About nine o'clock, I guess it was. She got the laundry together, said she was going to the laundromat, and that's the last time I saw her. Monday? That's two days ago. Did she take the car? No. Amy doesn't drive. I, I offered to drive her. Laundromat's about five blocks from here. In that little community center on Riverside, you probably passed it. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And she said no. She thought the walk would do her good. And she hasn't called or anything since, huh? No. No, nothing. Oh. Well, uh, how about friends, relatives? Well, I've inquired around the neighborhood. Uh, you see, we haven't lived here long, Mr. Marlowe. We're not really what you call well acquainted with anyone here. You mean the valley? Uh, well, in California, really. Oh. We're from New Jersey. Came out here right after the first of the year. Amy always wanted to live in California. And, you know, we moved out. Yeah, but about those relatives, you didn't say what... Why, you... uh, I have none uh, living. Oh. Amy does have a cousin out here, a cousin Beatrice. Uh, that's all I've ever heard her call Beatrice. She lives in Burbank. I've never met her. Seems like I've always been busy when Amy's gone over there. Mm-hmm. Cousin Ray usually picks Amy up. That's uh, Cousin Beatrice's husband. Well, have you called there since Amy's disappeared? Oh, yes, yes, a number of times, but uh, there's been no answer. That's odd, too. How odd? Cousin Beatrice is uh, an invalid, Amy says. Uh, That's why she's never come to call on us. Well, perhaps they were out when I called. Maybe so. Tell me, Mr. Harper, you and Amy, have you been happy together? I I mean, you haven't quarreled or anything. Oh, no, Mr. Marlowe. Amy and I have never raised our voices to one another. We've been very happy. Yeah. Well, it isn't much to go on. Oh, by the way, if you check the hospital, you know, there could have been an accident. I thought of that first. Yes, I've called them. No... No one fitting Amy's description. Oh, that's a point about that description. You have a recent picture of your wife? Oh, yes. Yes, of course. Uh, uh, Will you come in the house, Mr. Marlowe? I'll get one for you. Okay, sure. Ah, dear. Amy loved it here, Mr. Marlowe. Flowers, big trees, all those plants you see. Amy cared for them, watered, cultivated them. Yeah. This is her garden, Mr. Marlowe. I'm just trying to keep it. Nice for her. He turned finally, a slight little gray man, led the way into the house. I felt sorry for him. Didn't take much to figure that his Amy was his whole life. And in his mild, gentle way, his heart was broken. Inside the house, as neat and well-kept as Enos Harper himself, I got the first real shock of the day. Because... The Amy I'd pictured in my mind as Zena spoke of her. 
was nothing at all like the portrait he handed me from the mantel. She's beautiful, isn't she, Mr. Marlowe? Yeah. Yes, she is. Yes. She's young, too. Much, uh, much younger than I. Yeah, much. I, I'm a very lucky man, Mr. Marlowe. Uh, well, about this picture, do you have a smaller one, one I can take with me? Why, yes, uh, one of these on the desk should be about the right size, I should think. I hadn't spotted the gallery on the desk across the room until Lena started for it. A quick count, and I came up with seven pictures of Amy, carefully arranged along the top ledge of the desk. All different, all beautiful. Uh, sensational is a better word, I think. The tinted ones showed the hair to be ash blonde, the eyes large and brown, and the mouth full. Enos broke the spell. This one, Mr. Morrow, I, I believe it's Amy's favorite. Oh, thanks. This will do fine. I'd uh, want it back later. Oh, sure, sure, you bet. Now then, is there anything more, anything else that might be helpful? Well, let's see. Oh, oh yeah, that cousin Beatrice, cousin Ray, their address and phone in Burbank, huh? And if they have a last name, that would help. Well, I don't have their address, but I imagine it's in the book. Uh, the name's Quinlan. Quinlan? Uh, Ray Quinlan, Burbank. Okay. And by the way, you said the laundromat your wife patronized is in the community center on Riverside? On the north side of the street, just a few doors east of where you turned to come up here. Oh, right. I, uh, I'll be waiting, Mr. Marlowe. If you find out anything, anything. Oh, sure. Right away. The little community had no name. But it had everything else. A series of one of each shops and services. All the way from health foods to a branch bank. Well, I parked on the street in front of the laundromat and studied the picture of Amy Harper again. Tried to figure her with a laundry bundle and couldn't. Tried to figure her with Enos and uh, decided to go back to the laundry bundle. Made more sense. I went inside. Never smelled anything so clean. Morning. Uh, can I help you? Yeah, I'm trying to get a line on someone. A Mrs. Harper, do you know her? Uh, Mrs. Harper. Mrs. Enos Harper. Oh, here. Now look at this. She looks like this. Oh, Amy, sure. Yeah, well, when's the last time you saw her? Well, let's see. A uh, day or so ago, I guess. Uh -huh. uh, let me check the bundles here. That'll tell us. Oh, yeah, here, here we are. Uh, Monday, it was. Monday morning, I think. Yeah, well, what I'd like... Excuse me, but my daughter's double parked out in front. Can I pick up my laundry? You can if you got the right ticket. Oh, yes, yes, here it is. Uh, Banning. Uh, just washed, was it, Mrs. Banning? No ironing? Uh, just washed. Uh, here we go. Now, that's uh, 62 cents. Oh, well, for once, I had the right change. Thank you. Can I take it out for you, Mrs. Banning? Oh, thank you. No, no, no. I can manage. Oh, and uh, thank you for letting me barge in. Oh, think nothing of it. Uh, what do you mean, uh, you're trying to get a line on Amy? Oh, well, just that. Anyone ever come in with her? can't remember anyone. Well, can you remember if you noticed anything special about her when she came in Monday? Yeah. What? You got her picture. 
Yeah, I mean beside that. No, she was just Amy. Uh Uh-huh. You want to pick up her laundry? I don't have her ticket. I was doing great, huh? Enos had told me Amy went to the laundromat on Monday morning, and now I knew as much as he did. Well, I took a picture with me into all the transportation offices around, bus, train, plane, car rental. Everyone liked the picture, but no one had sold her a ticket on anything. The supermarket and the drugstore were every bit as helpful, and then... Then I remembered her green thumb. Well, I must say I've seen her many times. Many times? Uh, with Mr. Harper, of course. Well, do you think you might have seen her Monday? No. No, not uh, Mrs. Harper. I do believe Mr. Harper was in Monday, though. Seems to me it was about his zinnias. Yeah, well... Uh, or was it his asters? I really couldn't say. I'd I believe never... it was his asters. Of course, it really doesn't matter too much. They're the same family, you know. Who? Zinnias and asters, same family. Oh. Uh, Compositi, you know, that's the family name. I'm impressed, but look, I want to tell you... Can you imagine they used to be called Starwarts? Huh? Starwarts, what a nasty little name for an aster. Have you got a Burbank phone directory? Hmm? No, I beg pardon? A Burbank phone directory. Oh, I thought we were talking about the Harpers. I thought we were, too. Starwarts. Ray Quinlan? That's right. Well, I'm Philip Marlowe, investigating the possible disappearance of Amy Harper. Amy? Oh, I... Come in. Thanks. Come in. I, uh... I understand that she's your wife's cousin. What? Oh, uh... Beatrice, yeah. Sit down, Marlowe. Oh, thanks. Enos hired you, huh? Yeah, that's right. He says he's tried to call here several times and no answer. How long has Amy been missing? Since Monday morning. Took some laundry to the laundromat and that's all anybody knows. Have you seen her since then? Heard from her? No. No, I sure haven't. I, uh, we halfway expected to hear from Amy Monday, too. Usually do, but we didn't. Mm. Well, how about your wife? Can I talk to her? Uh, Beatrice isn't here. She, uh, I took her to the hospital this morning. They're going to operate later today. Oh, I hope it does the trick. Yeah, so do we. Well, that's right. Enos says she's, uh, she's an invalid. Yeah, that's right. How about Amy? I, uh, that's all you know? Just that she left for the laundromat? And got there, that's about it. It's crazy. Amy wouldn't just disappear. Wouldn't she? No. No, I... I don't think she would. Yeah. Well, I'm in the book, Mr. Quinlan. Central Directory, if you get any ideas, call me, huh? Yeah, yeah, I will. Oh, uh, uh, by the way, were they happy together, the Harpers? Yes. As far as I know. late afternoon sun was just at eye level as I headed west again on Riverside Drive. Cousin Ray was a brown, solid man, not fat, but husky. Not too tall, 5'10", maybe, must be about 35 or so. Enos wasn't home when I got back to Amy's natural habitat, so... On a hunch, nothing more, I checked with a next-door neighbor. Mrs. Brownlee, her name was, was spooning her yogurt straight and propelling her patio glider like... She was closing in on the finish line of the Honolulu Yacht Races. Well, 
I saw her coming out of the laundromat and offered her a ride home. Uh-huh. Monday was just real warm, you may remember. Oh, Lulu, yeah. Well, yes, you might put it that way. Anyway, I told her I was driving right after her. I picked up some wheat germ and some blackstrap molasses. I'd be going home and that she was welcome to ride with me. Uh-huh. And she gave me that nice smile of hers and says, No, thanks, Miss Brownlee. The walk will do me good. Now, just why a walk in the hot sun would do anyone any good is beyond me. But I'm not one to push myself onto other people. And the ride was there. She could take it or leave it. Yeah, tell me, did you see her after that? Yes, yes, I did. This time from across the street. But there's no mistaking her for anyone else, you know. No, I don't suppose there is. Well, there she was, going into Pliny's. Uh, just a minute, just a minute. Pliny's? The camera shop. Pliny Branstetter's place. Hocus pocus out of focus. That's what Mr. Blount calls Pliny. Uh-huh. But then they're in the lodge together, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that makes all the difference. Well, I really wouldn't know if she was or not. You see, Pliny's not here. Uh, he had to go into Hollywood for supplies. I don't work here. I'm his wife. Yeah, but if Mrs. Harper left some pictures here or picked some up, there'd be a record of it, wouldn't there? Yes, I suppose there would. I, I just left the door open to keep cool. We're really supposed to be closed. Yeah, I realize that. Well, I I just thought for a member of the lodge, you know, Pliny might be willing to... Uh... Why didn't you say so? Well, Left I... your emblem on your other suit, I'll bet. Yeah. Oh, Pliny does it all the time. You, man. That's right. I'm in the auxiliary. Are you really? Mm-hmm. Well, now, let's have a look here. Um, pictures for Mrs. Harper. Hmm? Uh-huh. Ought to be here. Uh, if they're back yet. Uh, Amy Harper? Yeah, that's right, yeah. There you are, Mr. Harper. Oh. Uh, oh. That'll be 73 cents, including tax. Oh, birthday. Hmm. Um, 73 cents, Mr. Harper. Hmm? Oh, yeah, well, I want to tell you two things. I think Mrs. Harper would want to pick these up herself, and uh, <laughs> I'm not Mr. Harper. I slowed to a walk around the corner, got in my car, and thought about what I'd seen. A cozy selection of pictures taken at the beach, of Amy mostly. But one or two of Cousin Ray lifting weights yet. And one of Amy and Ray together. Who took it? Enos? Cousin Beatrice? Eh, I don't think so. Well, it was almost dark now as I eased the car into Enos' driveway. And when I got there, it was dark. The sky above still held the afterglow of early evening. But the web of compact trees and shrubs that surrounded the Harper house made patches of blackness all around me. I got out of the car and I saw a light somewhere in the back of the house. And back there, too, a faint sound I couldn't distinguish. There was a sudden movement from the hedge behind. Stay out of it, Marlowe. Stay out of it. not a pain at the top of my spine. But the bulldozer who jumped me from behind wouldn't settle for that. My face mashed into the dew-soaked grass and I inhaled a lungful of wet vigoro while someone with the strength of ten flailed away at my back. Why I wanted to turn over and take it head on, I'll never know. 
but I kept trying to turn. I slithered instead, slid along the wet grass with a vice on my back. A vice with a voice that kept hounding me. Stay out of it, Marlowe. Stay out of it. Hopper. You had it, Marlowe. Hopper. Hopper. Get off my property now. Go on, get over here. Hey, Hopper. Yes? Uh, Mr. Marlowe. What's left of me, you... Oh, I, I don't understand, Mr. Marlowe. What, what happened? Who, who was it? Uh, three guesses. Well, what do you mean? Skip it. Well, you, you, you better come into the house, Mr. Marlowe. Yeah, I'll help you. Uh, Easy. Is it loud enough for you to hear out back? Uh, loud enough? Uh, oh, yes, I, I came running, didn't I? Yeah, you should. Sure well, come along now. I, oh. I'll take care of you, Mr. Marlowe. Someone beat you to it, Enos. Should I? Hey, Enos. Uh, yes? You like the beach? Why, it's all right, Mr. Marlowe. I, I'm not much of a swimmer anymore. I, well, Amy never cared for the beach, so we never went. Uh-huh. Now, why do you ask? Oh, I don't know. Why do you ask anything? Uh, Mr. Marlowe, I know you've been through a lot. I, I wouldn't blame you if you'd want to give up looking for Amy. If you Forget would, it, Enos. I'll give up anything. Well, so far the case added up to a stiff back and a head wrapped in a tight band of steel with built-in hammer. A few quick blasts at the pint in the glove department helped not at all. But something drove the car. A stop at the hospital in Burbank could have been for personal reasons. The attendant at the main floor desk looked real surprised when I asked what floor Cousin Beatrice was on. It's nearly 9.30. Visiting hours are over at 8.30. Oh, well, I lost track of time, I guess. Uh, Can you tell me where she is anyway? I'll come back tomorrow. What did you say the name was? Quinlan. Mrs. Ray or Mrs. Beatrice. Could be either one. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Bush. Quinby. That's it. No Quinlan list. You sure? I just looked. Are you sure? No, as a matter of fact, I'm not. Thanks for asking me. Oh, Marlowe, come in. Yeah, I will. Hey, you look all in. I'm fine. What hospital is your wife in, Quinlan? Wife? The one about three blocks from here, just up on Riverside? Yeah, Who yeah. made her up, Quinlan? You or Amy? What do you mean, made her up? Amy never had a cousin, Beatrice, like you never had a wife of the same name. Well, you know that much. Do you know where Amy is? No. I may get another psychic flash any minute now, like the one I got when you were unlacing my spine a while back. You shouldn't have found out about those pictures. More than that, you shouldn't have gone to tell Enos about them. There's a lot he don't know. Amy doesn't want to hurt the old guy. We've been trying to figure out how to tell him. Have you got any leads on her? Not any real ones. You... Hey, wait a minute. You really don't know where she is. I knew I'd be with her. Huh? Hey, tell me, how'd you meet her? At a bar over in Riverside near where she lives. Yeah? She'd already invented Cousin Beatrice all by herself to give her someplace to go. We we liked it being together. Got kind of brave about it after a while. Sometimes I go right up to a door for her. The rest of the time, we have a regular corner where I pick her up. 
This corner, is it near our house? Not far. I was supposed to pick her up Monday, but she didn't show up. Yeah. Hey, you know what's funny? I was all set to beat your head flat when I came in. All of a sudden, I don't feel like it. When I got back to the car, I thought my head would cave in. Every inch of me screamed with pain, and sometimes you got to give in to these things. I tried for home, but I only made it to a motel on Riverside. I was out before the light was. I found a barber shop and black coffee the next morning in the community center near Harper's. It was a thick, fuzzy 10 o'clock when I reeled out onto the street and headed toward my car. That's the one time. Uh, hey, you there. Hey, wait a minute. Me? Yeah, hey, you. Uh, you sure, honey? Uh, I'm sure, all right. Oh, what's the trouble? I do something wrong, Mrs. Pliny? Pliny thinks so. Tell him. Well, posing as a large brother when you're not as pretty serious, mister, I don't like that. Well, I don't think much of it myself now that I think of it. But we'll skip that. What I want to know is what's the deal with those pictures of Mrs. Harper's? No deal? Why? Everybody's looking at them. Nobody's picking them up or paying wait for them. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Do that slow. All right. First, Mrs. Harper comes in. Yeah. Uh, Monday it was, Monday. And they're not ready yet. She says she'll pick them up later that day. She don't come back. A guy does, though. He just looks at them, smiles, and says she'll get them. Who was he, do you know? Well, I don't know him. He's a young guy, brown hair, got a tan. Uh-huh. Well? Well, in about an hour, another guy comes in, and he looks, but he don't buy. Then last evening, you... Oh, wait a minute. In. That second guy, Pliny, he's older. Small man, gray, about 60? Yeah. Now, here's my problem. Who wants those pictures? Not your problem, Pliny, old boy. It's mine. The house was open, so I walked in. Enos was out in the back, pouring something out of a sack onto a flower bed along the back fence, then working it into the soil around the flowers. I looked around and found a bedroom that had to be Amy's. Everything was neat, in order. I turned and started out of the room, and then... Then I saw it sticking out from under a cologne bottle on our dressing table. I picked it up, and as I turned to go out, three matched pieces of luggage pointed an accusing finger. And then I found my way back into the garden. Hi. Good morning, Mr. Marlowe. Have you, uh, found out anything? Yeah. I think I have. This laundry ticket, Enos, I found it in Amy's room. Oh? Why didn't you tell me the truth in the first place? I... I don't know what you mean. Amy was here after she left for the laundromat. The ticket proves it. Well, You I... found out about Cousin Ray, didn't you, Enos? You looked at the pictures in the camera shop. Maybe you'd suspected for a long time and this cinched it. So you picked her up on the corner instead of Ray and you came home. Mr. And you had a big fat fight about Ray, didn't you? Right. Yes. Yes, we did, I said some horrible things, Mr. Morrow. Horrible things. Now you're sorry. You want her back, don't you? Right. I'd give anything to have her back, Mr. Morrow. I, I love her, you know. Yeah, I know. Enos, I looked through Amy's closet. It's pretty full of clothes. Her luggage is still there. Yes. Amy has a lot of clothes. She She wears them well, too. Amy didn't go very far, Enos. 
No. The man in the garden shop says you're the gardener around here. Not Amy. Did he? That sack of lime is almost empty, ain't it? Fifty pounds is a lot for a garden, isn't it? Depends on what use you put it to, Mr. Mama. Did you have to kill her, Amy? To keep her, I did. She wanted to leave me. Go away with him. I couldn't stand that. Did you think I wouldn't figure it out? I didn't know. But I had to find out. Didn't I, Mr. Mullen? He came with me quietly. Everything about him was quiet and neat and gray. He was the mildest, gentlest man I ever met, and yet he had killed the thing he loved most, his Amy. For the oldest reason in the world, she wasn't his anymore. What was it the old man said? I had to find out, didn't I, Mr. Marlowe? Yeah. Curiosity killed the cat. It also killed Amy. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald and written for radio by Kathleen Height. Featured in the cast were Bill Johnstone as Enos Harper and Jack Moyles as Ray Quinlan, with Mary Lansing, Sam Edwards, Junius Matthews, Vivi Janice, and Peter Lee. Gerald Moore may currently be seen in the Santana production, Sirocco. This special music for Philip Marlowe is composed by Pierre Garrigank and conducted by Wilbur Hatch. Be sure to listen again next week at the same time when Philip Marlowe says... This time the parlay was divorced, the kidnapping, the blackmail. Everybody was a wise guy, the dame, the racket boss, and the private eye. But the wisest guy of them all turned out to be an eight-year-old kid. What a combination for Tin Pan Alley fans. Steve Allen is MC. His vocalists this week are Peggy Lee and Johnny Desmond. Song publisher J.J. Robbins, band representative Mark Hanna, and composer Mitchell Parrish are the judges. There will be four brand new songs for sale tonight on CBS Radio on most of these same CBS stations. Roy Rowan speaking. This is the CBS Radio Network. That was The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. That episode was entitled The Long Way Home, and it first was broadcast on CBS on August the 4th in 1951. That story, unlike most of the Marlowe stories, took place in the San Fernando Valley 
1951, the San Fernando Valley was fairly unpopulated. What did Marlowe say, that the population was 800,000? I'm surprised it was that high. The um, valley today has about 2 million people in it, and that's just the San Fernando Valley. The, the, the valley kind of wraps around the, what they call the Los Angeles Basin, and north and west, it's the San Fernando Valley, and then east, and as it goes south, it becomes the San Gabriel Valley. Not too sure what town Marlowe was in, because he said he followed Riverside Drive, which starts in Glendale and weaves up to Burbank, goes right by uh, the Disney Studios and Warner Brothers and ABC, and uh, ends up over near uh, Sherman Oaks in the uh, sort of the central part of the San Fernando Valley uh, before you get into the West Valley. At any rate, he mentions it being hot up there, and, and that's true. The valley doesn't get the ocean breezes because of the, the hills and mountains around it that you get in the Los Angeles Basin. Growing up in Long Beach, we lived about five or six miles from the ocean, and we never even had air conditioning in our cars. Uh, really didn't need it. We didn't have it in our homes. But we'd go up to see friends in the valley, and once you once you got through those passes, either the Sepulveda Pass or the Coinga Pass, it uh, the temperature would usually rise up about 10, 15 degrees. Summertimes up there, you know, you could be very uncomfortable at uh, 95, 100 degrees, whereas down in Long Beach, it would be maybe 15 degrees cooler. Oh, did you notice that Marlowe said you could find his his uh, phone number in the central directory? I, I can remember... Uh, in, in the Los Angeles area after I got a job, you literally had maybe 30 different phone books. You know, you'd have a phone book for the West Valley and you'd have a phone book for the East Valley and you'd have a phone book for uh, Central Los Angeles. They're the Central Directory. You'd have one for Long Beach and South Bay and so on and so forth. There was just that many people. You know, it wouldn't be true in smaller communities around the country. Like my wife grew up in Peoria. They, they only had one phone book. But uh, in Los Angeles, they had, oh, man, I bet you it was 20. Well, that was a good one. Didn't you agree? I, I really enjoyed that episode. I kind of just hung on hung on every word. And I, to be honest, I was a little surprised at the end. All right. Well, we'll have more Philip Marlowe in the weeks ahead. I am a roving gambler. I gamble all Whenever I meet with a deck of cards, lay my money down, lay my money down, lay my money down. I had not been in Washington many more weeks than three. Met up with a pretty little girl, she fell in love with me, she fell in love with me. Gambler go with that gambler go with that 
Admittedly, that's not an old song, but it's just one I like a lot, so I thought I'd play it. It's called Rovin' Gambler, and it's by Billy Joe and Nora Jones. Something familiar. Something familiar. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Ah! Something appealing. Something appalling. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. With kings, not playing with crowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns. Ah! Situation, no complications. Nothing portentous or polite. Ready tomorrow, comedy tonight. <laughs> We have a real treat for you coming up on the Comedy Corner this week. I was listening to the episode that I'm about to play you in bed last night. I had earphones on, or earbuds, and I started laughing, giggling, and then it started to turn into a side-splitting laugh. I had to get up out of bed because I was afraid I was going to wake Carol up and go in the other room and finish listening. This is really a funny show. What is it? It's the Jack Benny Show. For those of you who have listened to me any amount of time, you know how what a big fan I am of Benny, especially when he had Ronald Coleman and Coleman's wife, Benita Hume, on the show. And of course, it's not just me. Millions of people felt that way over the years. Well, I was doing some updating of my show logs the other night, and I realized that there's several episodes that in the last 10 years I have never played of the Benny show that uh, featured Ronald Coleman and Benita Hume. Now, Part of the reason was some of the recordings I had weren't very good, and I don't like to play poor quality recordings on the show. But I've gotten some new uh, new files over the years that I have incorporated in, and I just realized it's time for me to make that deficit up. So what I'm going to do over the next couple weeks is play several different episodes. Some of them maybe we've played before, but it's been a while. But some of them, like the one tonight, I've never played before. 
Now, just to give you a little background, I found some interesting notes on the Jack Benny Fan Club website. And it mentioned that Jack liked to have a famous star as a neighbor because he could get a lot of script mileage out of borrowing things from the neighbor. The neighbor trying to avoid Jack and that sort of thing. And it probably never worked better than it did with Ronald Coleman and his long-suffering wife, Benita Hume. Coleman was cast as Jack's neighbor because he was so proper, so refined, that the writers decided it would be very funny to have him lose his cool when it came to pesty Jack. Actually, there were some Benny shows that played in the early 40s where Basil Rathbone, who was very much the same type of character, was Jack's neighbor, and those were funny too. During Jack's TV series, they tried to do the same thing with uh, Jimmy and Gloria Stewart, Jimmy Stewart and his wife Gloria, but most viewers never found that as funny. Of course, we're all big fans of Jimmy Stewart and we respect his work, but he was just too much of an aw shucks kind of nice regular guy to be nearly as funny as Ronald Coleman was whenever he was bothered by Jack. Ronald Coleman was such the genteel gentleman that to watch him boil over at Jack's annex and listen to how completely oblivious Jack was to Coleman's animosity. And of course, then to listen to Benita Hume try to calm Coleman down. Well, the whole thing just had such great chemistry. It was side-splittingly hilarious. So what we've got for you tonight was an episode of the Jack Benny Show that was originally broadcast on November the 9th in 1947. Now, this one is titled The Corner Drugstore, but that's the first part of the show. And it's funny, but it's the second part of the show that you're just going to hold on to your side. You're going to be laughing so hard. So here we go from November of 1947, The Jack Benny Show. The Jack Benny Program, presented by Lucky Strike. The Lucky Strike program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. Passengers, please step to the rear. Step to the back of the bus, please. Oh, isn't this awful, Catherine? You'd think some gentleman would get up and give one of us a seat. I beg your pardon, ladies, but would any of you care to sit down? Oh, you're very kind, isn't he, Catherine? He certainly is. He got up and gave the three of us a seat. <laughs> yes. He has a very big heart. <laughs> Jack Benny's announcer? Well, yeah, yes, yes, I am. Oh, I just love that program. It has so many interesting characters. They act so crazy. Oh, Jeanette, they only do that to make people laugh on the radio. They, those things never happen in real life. <laughs> oh, they don't, huh? Well, now let me tell you something that really happened yesterday. What was it? Well, Jack Benny, Phil Harris, and Dennis Day dropped into the corner drugstore to get a bite to eat. <laughs> What are you going to have, Phil? I don't know, Jackson. What are you going to have? I don't know. How about you, Dennis? I don't know. See, it's so hard to decide what to... Hmm, just look at that. Waiter! Waiter! 
Yes, sir. Look, there's lipstick on my glass. Well, there's water in it, too. Wash it off. <laughs> Their bread should be that fresh. Well, Phil, have you decided yet? Yeah, I think I know what I want, Jackson. What'll it be, sir? A roast beef sandwich and a fifth of milk. <laughs> Phil, milk doesn't come in fifth. Well, how do I know? It's the first time I ever ordered this stuff. <laughs> Dennis, have you made up your mind yet? Yeah. Waiter, bring me a dish of ice cream with a strip of bacon on it. <laughs> Dennis, ice cream with bacon? That's ridiculous. Why don't you have it with chocolate syrup? Okay. Waiter, bring me some bacon with chocolate, chocolate syrup on it. Yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> hey, what are you going to have, Jackson? Yeah, I don't know. Hey, waiter, what would you suggest? How about lamb stew? Mm, no. Some veal cutlets? Mm, no, I'm going home soon. I just want something to hold me together. How about some scotch tape? <laughs> Look, just get their orders, and I'll think of what I want. Let's see. Hey, Dennis, how's your Colgate show doing? Oh, it's fine. I like the idea of having two shows. Gee, I don't know what to order. Yeah. How's your Fitch bandwagon doing, Phil? Great kid, great. Alice just picked up my option for another 13 weeks. <laughs> Maybe I ought to Holy have... Holy smoke, Jackson. Haven't you made up your mind yet what you want to eat? Well, how can I think with you fellas always talking? I got two shows. I got two shows. I got two shows. That's all you hear. Two shows. You ought to be ashamed of yourself putting other people out of work with two shows. I haven't got two shows. They've got two shows. Well, bully for them. <laughs> what? Here are your orders, gentlemen. Now, what'll you have? Well, I think I'll have a hamburger. And let's see, do you have any hot chocolate? No, but here's a Hershey bar and a match. <laughs> oh, nuts. They're in it, too. <laughs> Never mind. Just, just give me that piece of chocolate cake right there. That's vanilla. It is not vanilla. It's chocolate. I'll dust it off and show you. <laughs> well, don't bother. Just give me a piece of that huckleberry pie. You want to make a bet? <laughs> <laughs> well, give it to me, whatever it is. A man could starve to death in here guessing. <laughs> now, give me that pie. Hey, Jack, Jack. Huh? Hey, look, look at that beautiful blonde coming toward the counter. Oh, yeah. Hey, Phil, she's heading this way. I'll move over one, then she'll have to sit between us. Hmm. Forgot I was sitting on the end stool. <laughs> Help me up off the floor, Phil. Well, there's a switch, me picking you up. <laughs> well, look, fellas, I gotta go home now. Look, I'll see you later. Hey, Jackson, so wait a minute. Wait a minute, Jackson. What about the check? Jackson, what about the... After 11 years, you'd think I'd know better. <laughs> How tight can a guy... Hey, Dennis, what are you looking at? That magazine over there, Ronald Coleman's picture's on the cover. Oh, yeah, Ronald. Gee, look at him. With those broad shoulders, intelligent eyes, pearly teeth, dimple in the chin. If he was one inch taller, he'd look just like me. <laughs> oh, yeah, Ronnie. Man, he sure is handsome. Thank you, old fellow. It was awfully nice of you to say that. <laughs> hey! Hey, Dennis, you know something? You sounded just like him. Yeah, I like to do imitations. Yeah, you're doing pretty good, too, kid. You know, I can hardly wait. Hey, 
Hey, wait a minute. Huh? Hey, look, I got a great idea. Hey, you want to have some fun, kid? Yeah, how? Well, now, look. Let's give Jackson time to get home, then we'll call him on the phone. You disguise your voice like Ronald Coleman's and invite him over to his house for a party. Oh, boy, come on, let's go in that phone booth. Well, take it easy, take it easy now. We got to give him plenty of time to get home. He's walking and he ain't really 38, you know. (laughs) All right, while we're waiting, let's play the jukebox. One of my records is in it. Oh, your record's okay. Here you are, I'll drop a nickel in there, huh? a long walk out to Beverly Hills after all. <laughs> mm, I might as well plant grass out of my front yard. They won't let me park cars here anymore. <laughs> let me see. Now, where's my key to the front door? Here's the key to my car. Here's the key to the back door. Here's the key to my hope chest. Key to my trunk. Key to the garage. Here's the key to that can of salmon I had last night. Why do I save those things? Oh, here it is. Is that you, boss? Rochester, what are you doing at home? You're supposed to be out at Hillcrest Golf Course looking for my golf ball. It's no use, boss. I've been looking for that ball for three weeks now, and I just can't find it. Well, did you look behind all the rocks? Uh-huh. Did you look in all the bushes? Mm-hmm. Did you look down the gopher holes? I even took the gophers to a doctor's office and had them x-rayed. <laughs> you had the gophers x-rayed? We found six acorns, a bunch of roots, a Canadian penny, but no golf ball. What? 
One of them had gallstones and he fooled us for a while. <laughs> well, that's the silliest thing I ever heard. Taking gophers to a doctor's office. I wish you would... Wait a minute, Rochester. What's that, what, what's that wiggling around your pocket? A gopher? I thought you'd like him for a pet. Oh. Look, boss, he's peeking out at you. Oh, isn't he cute? Look at that sweet little face. Got blue eyes, just like mine. <laughs> I wonder if I could get his teeth straightened. <laughs> Imagine the patter of little gopher feet around the house. <laughs> Say, Rochester, how'd you happen to pick this one to bring home? He's the one with the Canadian penny. <laughs> oh. When do we operate, boss? <laughs> Joking. Now, Rochester, you better go back out of the golf course and keep looking for the ball. It must be... Hey, I just thought of something. Maybe we looked in the wrong place. Now, we took it for granted that I hit that ball in the rough. Maybe I hit such a good shot it landed right on the green. Oh, boss, come now! <laughs> yeah, I guess you're right. Well, we'll look for the ball tomorrow. By the way, Rochester, what are we going to have for dinner? Six acorns, a bunch of roots, and southern fried gopher. I don't want that. Just open a can of sardines. Okay, give me your key, Jane. Here you are. And hurry. I haven't had anything but a dusty piece of pie all day. I'll be in the... There's the phone. I'll get it. Hello? Hello, old boy. This is Ronald Coleman. Ronald Coleman? Well, Ronnie, how are you? Splendid, splendid, thank you. Good, good. How's Benita? Who? <laughs> Benita, your wife. Oh, oh, I thought you said Santanita. <laughs> Benita's fine. Good, good. Oh, uh, by the way, Jack, what are you doing tonight? Nothing, nothing. Why? Well, Benita and I are having a little party at the house, and we'd love to have you come over. Tonight? Gee, that'll be swell, Ronnie. What time should I be there? Uh, just a minute. I'll ask Santanita. Who? Uh, Benita, my wife Oh Hey, Phil, what time shall I tell him to be there? Nine o'clock and tell him to bring his girl with him Hello, Jack Benita says nine would be fine and to bring your lady friend with you You mean my girl, Gladys Abisko? Yes, we've both been anxious to meet her Hey, kid, kid, tell him it's a costume party Oh, uh, by the way, Jack, when you come over tonight, we wish you'd wear something <laughs> Costume party, you know. Oh, a costume party. Gee, that'll be fun. We'll be there at 9 o'clock sharp. Goodbye, Ronnie. Goodbye, Jack. Hey, Rochester. Rochester, I've been invited over to Mr. and Mrs. Coleman's for a party tonight. You want me to get your tuxedo? No, no, this is a costume party. Gee, I don't know how to dress. Oh, why don't you wear your toupee upside down and go as a bird's nest? <laughs> <laughs> Say, maybe I... No, it would tickle me. Hey, wait a minute. I know where I can get a cowboy costume. That's it. I'll go as a cowboy. Are you going to take Miss Livingston? No, no. She's out of town this week. I'm going to take my old girlfriend, Gladys Abisko. She'll love it. Gee, Gladys, it's nice out tonight, isn't it? It sure is, Feeney. <laughs> I'm 
glad you were able to make it. I thought that since it's so close to Thanksgiving, you might be busy. Oh, I got Hilda to fill in for me. But can Hilda do your work? Oh, sure. She can pluck turkeys faster than anybody. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a feather in her cap. <laughs> oh, gee, you're so witty, Speedy. What people see in Georgie Jessel, I'll never know. Gee, Gladys, you'll like the Colemans. Ronnie and Benita are regular guys. Even though they're high class and interested in things like opera and art. Art? Oh, then maybe No, no, I no, Gladys, can... no. Don't show them your tattoos. <laughs> keep, your, keep, keep your sleeves down, you know. Say, Gladys, would you like a cigarette? Sure. Here you are. A lucky strike. No, they're made from that fine, that light, that naturally mild tobacco. Listen to the man who knows, I always say. Now, you know, Gladys, quality of product is essential to continuing success. You're telling me. <laughs> you know, and another thing, Gladys, lucky strikes are so round, so firm, so fully packed, so free and easy on the draw. Ain't it the truth? Gosh, Gladys, you look so cute in your costume, so Western. So do you, Speedy. We were both lucky to find that costume shop open so late. Yeah, they certainly fixed me up with a complete cowboy outfit. Lasso, ten-gallon hat, and a gun. I can't wait till we get to the Ronald Coleman. Oh, Ronnie. What is it, Benita? windows before you got into bed. I did, darling. Well, if you're ready to go to sleep, I'll turn out the light. No, no, no just a minute. I'm not quite through reading. Uh, you know, Benita, this is really exciting. You must read it when I'm through with it. Oh, I've already read it. You know, there's one part there where... No, the no, Mac no, don't tell me. Don't tell me. I want to find out myself what Mumbles is going to do. <laughs> <laughs> He's an interesting fellow. Well, you can find out tomorrow. I'm going to turn out the light. All right. Just a moment. There. All right. You can turn it out now. You know, Benita, I know you won't think I'm conceited, but Random Harvest is one of the best pictures ever made. <laughs> I agree with you, darling. Now shut off the projector and let's go to sleep. <laughs> Glad we turned in early tonight. Got a lot of retakes for the studio tomorrow morning. Yes, I know. Well, good night, Ronnie. Good night, darling. <laughs> Benita, you're snoring. Butler's night off, and there's only one way to find out. Uh, go down and see who it is, darling. Hey, I suppose it's a burglar. What would I do? I don't know. I've never been in a picture with that particular situation. 
It's probably a telegram. Now, put on your robe and go to the door. Oh, all right. All right, all right. I'm coming, I'm coming. Imagine getting a man out of a nice, warm bed. Yes? Here we are, partner. Me and the little woman came over the door. I get along, little dog. Get along, get along, get along, little dog. Uh, just a minute. Uh, just a minute. There must Step be some... aside, you bomber. Fuck Benny, rise again. <laughs> Come on, girl, let's go inside and join the fun. Now, right behind your butt. <laughs> but, Jack, Jack, there must be Tell me, partner, where's Benita? Well, she's upstairs. We we'll were go the... get the little woman down here. Now, look. Go on, tell her, you bombing. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Benita, it's Jack Benny. Jack Benny? Yes, and he has a gun. <laughs> Lend him what he wants and send him home. <laughs> he doesn't want to borrow anything this time. He thinks we're having a party. <laughs> a party? Not funny, my dear. You should have seen Benny and that girl bursting in here with those silly costumes. Costumes? Yes, Benny's dressed up like Roy Rogers. Oh. What does the girl look like? Trigger. <laughs> Just because you're angry at Jack, I mean, that's no reason to insult the girl. She's probably a pretty little thing. But how old is she? Oh, I don't know. Somewhere between 35 and 40. Oh, she's no chicken. Not with those turkey feathers all over her. <laughs> Imagine. Imagine Benny doing a thing like this. I've a good notion to... Yes, that's what I'll do. Oh, darling, no. We can't stop sending our laundry to him. <laughs> I suppose not. Uh, he is a master with the starch. <laughs> anyway, I think it's absolutely disgraceful Well, well, for get him back to... into bed. I'll go downstairs and tell him to leave. No use, darling. He won't even listen to you. Say, I have a better idea. Get dressed. What? I know what I'm doing, Benita. Get dressed. Gee, I wish they'd hurry down. They've been upstairs a long time. They sure have, Speedy. Uh, while we're waiting, let's turn on the radio. Okay. Gee, that's our song they're playing. Let's dance, Snooksy. It would be an extreme pleasure. <laughs> See, what memories this brings back. Our first meeting, we were dancing like this, remember? And as we danced, you sang the words into my ear. Sing them again. Go ahead, Gladys, will you? Okay. Huh? I love to hear you sing. Okay. Take my heart. I love you. We'll never part. I love you. I always knew it would be you. Oh, come on, dance a little closer, sweetie. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> What's the matter? 
Those feathers are tickling me. <laughs> At the place where I work. Well, don't worry. Gee, I wonder why the Coleman's aren't down yet. Ronnie, do you think it was right of us to sneak out the back way and go to a movie? Yes. And it'll teach Benny a lesson. Well, what movie are we going to see? I don't know, and I don't care. Anything to get away from that man. Still in our house. How long do you think they'll stay? I have no idea. But tomorrow, open another airway. <laughs> I don't blame you for being upset. It's amazing the way Jack Benny brings out the worst in people. Uh, how do you mean? Well, for instance, take that playwright fella, Norman Krasner. Well, what about Mr. Krasner? Huh? Well, usually he's a very brilliant conversationalist. But as soon as he gets around Benny, all he can say is, ha, 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 please, please, people are staring. Oh, sorry. Here's the theater, Ronnie. Oh, yes, yes. Um, two loge seats, please. Here you are, sir. By the way, miss, we didn't notice. What picture are you showing? The horn blows at midnight. <laughs> What? Ronnie, Ronnie, let go of the girl. It's not her fault. Ronnie! Gee, sweetie, uh, do you think the Colons will mind us going into their kitchen and getting something to eat? No, it's half past twelve and we're hungry. Gee, they sure have a big refrigerator. Yeah. I wonder what program they want it on. <laughs> now, let's see what's inside. There's some ham and half a roast beef. And... Well, how do you like that? Only this morning I sent Rochester over and they told him they were out of eggs. And look, they're lousy with butter, too. Well, say, Gladys, look. Look, there's a turkey. Please, not on my day off. <laughs> oh, yes, I forgot. Well, let's eat something. Look, Ronnie, you can see them through our window. They're still in the house. Yes, and I've got to get some sleep. Well, there's only one thing to do, and I'm going to do it. Come on, Benita. Why, Mr. and Mrs. Coleman, you've got the wrong house. You live next door. We know where we live. Just show us Mr. Benny's bedroom. We've got to get some sleep. But, Mr. Coleman... Good night, Manchester. Good night. Now, Jack will be back in just a moment, but first, one of the rarest privileges anyone can have is to be able to say, I saved a life. By now, we all know what is meant by the word care. C-A-R-E. This nation's help in alleviating the food shortage in Europe has saved thousands of lives, so let's keep on sending our contributions to C-A-R-E. C-A-R-E, Care, New York. Let's give again and save another life. Thank you. 
Boulevard, next stop. Please leave the bus by the rear exit. Well, this is where I get off, girls. Mr. Wilson, that was a very funny story you told us about Jack Benny, but a thing like that couldn't really happen. Oh, yes, it could. That's why I'm taking the bus to work. Why, Mr. Coleman. Benny's car broke down, and he's using mine. NBC, the National Broadcasting Company. Well, there you have it. From November 9th, 1947, that was the Jack Benny Show. The name of that episode is usually referred to as the Corner Drugstore. Phil Harris was funny in that, where he he was just so delighted, so giddy to feed Dennis that information. <laughs> Tell him it's a costume. Can you imagine, Jack... And he's dates showing up at Coleman's. And what would, what was really funny is they had Coleman's going to bed at 9 o'clock. I'm sorry, folks. That whole thing just cracked me up. Oh, I, it just, just really tickles me. I just think that is so funny. Just the whole chemistry there. <laughs> A couple notes. A couple notes on there. Um. He talked about having a key to open his can of fish. Remember, do they still make those like that? Do you remember how horrible that used to be? Not It wasn't just fish. The fish had the big flat tins, right? He he had salmon. I don't remember salmon coming that way. But sardines did and and, and herring. Uh, my my uh, grandfather used to, because he was from Scandinavia. He was from Finland. He used to love kipper snacks that would come in a can like that. It was basically, I think, smoked herring or smoked fish of some kind. But you know what I'm talking about? They'd have that, the, the, the actual key would fit on the, a, a little lip of the can top, and you would actually peel the top of the can off, and it would roll up on this, on this long key. And boy, it was an easy way to cut yourself. Something else, you, deviled ham used to come like that, right? Underwood deviled ham used, and oh, you had to try to twist that, and if it if it got off track, oh, you'd have a mess. You couldn't get the can open. I don't know why they did that. For the kipper snacks, I guess I can understand, but I don't know why they did that with a regular can. Airwick, I think Ronald Coleman said that that they need to open another bottle of Airwick. Do you remember that Airwick? Now, of course, we have all these different kinds of sprays to to. Uh, freshen up a room or deodorize a room or whatever but airwick used to used to come in a bottle of liquid and you would pull up the top and there would literally be like a some kind of a fibrous wick there that would absorb the 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 liquid from down below in the bottle and you would just set it someplace and and it would become saturated and, and let off the scent i hadn't thought about that for years i can remember i can remember putting one of those in my car when i first started driving airwick 
Random Harvest, they mentioned that film. That, of course, was a film that that starred uh, Ronald Coleman. You you probably knew that. And then at the end, I got uh, thinking about Don Wilson um, talking about care packages. They still have care, but you don't hear about care packages. Remember that used to always be kind of a joke. Oh, did you get your care package yet? Well, it ends up that care, uh, I looked it up, it came into existence right after the Second World War. In fact, it was formally uh, founded in 1945. CARE was initially a consortium of 22 American charities, and these were a mixture of civic, religious, and farm and labor organizations. And it had the express purpose of delivering food aid to Europe in the aftermath of World War II. CARE's food aid took the form of CARE packages, which were first delivered to specific individuals. Now, this is very interesting. Americans paid $10 to send a care package of food to a loved one in Europe, often a family member. Care guaranteed delivery within four months to anyone in Europe, even if they had left their last known address. And they agreed to return a signed delivery receipt to the sender. Because the European postal services were so unreliable, these signed receipts were sometimes the first confirmation their U.S. relatives had that the recipient had survived the war. The first care packages were in fact surplus U.S. Army ration packs designed to contain a day's meals for 10 people. In early 1946, CARE purchased 2.8 million of these warehouse ration packs, which were originally intended for the invasion of Japan. On May 11, 1946, the first care packages were delivered in France. They contained staples such as canned meats, powdered milk, dried fruits, and fats, along with a few comfort items such as chocolate and coffee. By early 1947, the supply of the 10-in-1 ration packs had been exhausted, and CARE began assembling its own packages designed with the help of a nutritionist. They were tailored somewhat by their destination. For instance, there was kosher packages. Packages that were bound for England included tea rather than coffee. Packages sent to Italy included pasta. By 1949, CARE offered and shipped more than 12 different packages. Although the organization had originally intended to deliver packages only to specified individuals, within a year CARE began delivering packages addressed to a teacher or to a hungry person in Europe. Between the first deliveries of 1946 and the last European deliveries of 1956, millions of care packages were distributed throughout Europe. And now, of course, it's a worldwide organization. Very interesting, but here we were listening to a show that was recorded in 1947. So this was fairly new. And it's really interesting to me, at least, to, uh, to see the origins of care.
No. No! everybody it is time for Gunsmoke. have a good episode this week this one was written by john meston and it's entitled professor loot bone it was originally heard back on november the 14th in 1953 and it features a good cast it's got john daner paul dubov barney phillips and lawrence dopkin and this one involves a Well, tell you what, I've had some complaints that say that I'm revealing too much of this story before we get started, so I won't do that. But let's just, (laughs) let's just say that this one is, uh, although it has a very serious undertone, and you'll see a serious side to it, it's also got a lot of laughs in it. I particularly enjoy the the scene where uh, Chester is the star, and you'll know what I'm talking about when you hear it. So here we go, from 1953, November the 14th, This is Professor Luke Bone, as originally heard on Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke, the story of the violence that moved west with young America. The story of a man who moved with it. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. stranger in Dodge, Marshal. Well, I've only been gone a week, Sam. Hey, you got any rye left? Kitty over there has got the last bottle, Marshal. Oh? I'll have some tomorrow when the Santa Fe gets in. Good. Meanwhile, I'll see if I can talk Kitty out of a drink. Sure. I heard you were back, Matt. How are you? Hey, you've been saving that bottle for me, Kitty? You know, I never drink rye. (laughs) Thanks. 
Well, it's the closest I've been to civilization in a week. Did you find what you're after? Yeah, I found him. Yeah. What's that stuff you're drinking? This? Here. Keep the bottle on the floor. Looks better. Let me see that. Professor Bone's Wonder Medicine. Celebrated vegetable pulmonic detergent. Well, I hope it tastes better than it reads, Kitty. It tastes fine, Matt. Makes you feel fine, too. Essential oil of worm seed, a new and valuable curative. Professor Bone, Ph.D., and Pulmist. Professor of Practical and Medical Botany, Natural and Civil History. Well, that makes sense. Where in the world did you get a hold of this? Well, everybody's taking it, Matt. Oh, I forgot you were away when Professor Bone arrived. Huh? You mean he's here in Dodge? Sure. Came last Thursday. Got a fancy wagon he lectures from every day. About this time, as a matter of fact, you should hear him, Matt. He's great. Yeah, yeah. He must be. No, he really is. Well, what's in that tonic, Kitty? You're kind of misty already. Makes you feel great, Matt. Try some, here. Uh, no, 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 thanks. I don't need any worm seed oil. Liquor does me all the harm I need. You'll buy some once you've heard him talk. He's awful smart, Matt. Yeah, yeah, he must be. He's a professor. It says so on the bottle. I don't care if he's a professor or not. He makes wonderful tonic. Yeah, I can see that. Matt? Oh, I'm glad you're back. Yes, you come with me. Oh, uh, hello, Doc. Sit down, No, you come with me, outside. I want you to see this spectacle. Huh? Oh, well, what are you talking about, By Doc? this red-nosed old scarecrow, Loot Bone. You ought to be tarred and feathered, that's what. Oh, look. Look right there. There's a bottle of... Kitty, that's yours. It's good, Doc. Real good. I'm going to smash this bottle in the street. No. If I find you drinking any more of it, I'll paddle you. That's what I'll do. Really, Doc? Oh, oh, you see. You see what it does to people? Come on, Matt. Okay, Doc. I might as well find out what this is all about. You'll excuse us, Kitty? You, not Doc. I mean what I said, Kitty. Fooey. Yeah, let's go, Doc. Uh, There's his wagon. And look at that crowd of fools. What's so wrong with it, Doc? I'll tell you later. First, I want you to hear him talk. The man's demented, that's what. Ah, there he is, Matt, yes. Is he standing in the back of his wagon there? Yes. He's finished entertaining them now. We're just in time for the serious part. Yes, ladies and gentlemen. I discovered the formula for this famous elixir while serving as personal surgeon to the king of Santo Del Rio. Oh, that liar. Easy, Doc. Let's listen. Professor Bone's Wonder Medicine has cured more than 3,000 cases of ague, 2,500 of chronic inflammatory rheumatism, 2,000 of green sickness, 1,000 of mercurial diseases, 1,500 of liver affections, and 6,000 of general debility. Matt, he ought to be hung. It purifies, cleanses, and strengthens the fountain springs of life and infuses new vigor throughout the entire body. In fact, my friends, Professor Bone's wonder medicine will cure all disorders incident to the human race. 
without exception, no matter what the age, circumstance, or place of residence of the afflicted patient. Hey, Professor, I live over in the stinking springs. Will it cure me? <laughs> You're drunk. For a day ever since I was weaned, Professor. I pity you, my friend. Professor, when I was 12, I got drunk and went to sleep at a hackerberry tree. I never did find out how I got down. <laughs> oh, don't laugh. Ladies and gentlemen, don't. Don't laugh. Pity the poor man, the poor wretch. Whiskey has him crushed in its foul trap. His eyes roomy, his brains awash, his manhood's gone. Are you sure? Whiskey, I tell you. Whiskey did it. Any more talk about me? I'll put a bullet in you, Professor. Evil man, drunken specter. I'm telling you, no more. No, no more. Now, ladies and gentlemen, about to appear on the wagon beside me is a man you all know and respect. One of your finest and most worthy citizens. A man whose very presence contributes mightily to the progress of your fair town. A man whose soul is pure, but whose body, ah, whose body has been the host of five separate diseases, any one of which would soon have been fatal. But now he is saved. Three bottles of Professor Bone's Wonder Medicine has done it, and, and here he is to tell you of this miraculous cure in his own words. Step forward, sir, and speak. Speak for the sake of your fellow man. Great heavens, Matt! It's Chester. Chester! Hello, Mr. Dillon! Get on from there. Why, yes, sir. But my dear sir... You've got to talk to the people. Hurry it up, Chester. Well, who are you, sir? Where are you going now? I'm going to get up. No, come back here, you. Come back. Just go on with your lecture, Professor. Never mind about him. You should pick the wrong fine citizen, Professor. <laughs> hey, Professor. Yes, what? This here stuff of yours will cure anything? Anything, my friend. Every disorder known to the medical faculty. Well, my old man is 80... And he's got a bean stuck in his throat. No, now shut up, all of you. It's for true. How about it, Professor Willie? I'll come to see your father, sir. I'll visit him as soon as I'm able to pass a few bottles down among the good people gathered here. Thanks. Hello, Mr. Dillon. Doc? Come on, let's get out of here. Chest of old people. I suppose he's got you all doped up with that stuff too, Chester? Oh, it makes you feel great, Doc. Is that why you were up there? No, sir. I got a deal with the professor. He pays me $2.50 a day and gives me all the medicine I can drink. Free. It's idiots like you that made it possible for such quackery, Chester? Now, here, Doc, I'm not an idiot. You've been acting like one. But that's not what's important. Matt, I've analyzed some of Bone's so-called medicine. It's got opium in it, for one thing. Well, you think it's dangerous? Doc? Of course it is. People can get in the habit, and what's worth is something is wrong with them, and they're taking the stuff they wouldn't find out until it's too late. You've got to stop this business, Matt. Yeah, I suppose you're right, Doc. Either you stop him or... or by heaven, I'll shoot him. 
Now, I'm serious, man. All right, Doc, all right. I'll talk to him a little later. In the meantime, you stay away from him, Chester. Yes, sir. I'm sorry, Mr. Dillon. I didn't know. All right, hold it, Sam, hold it. Uh, Professor Bone, I'd like to have a word with you. Who are you, sir? I'm a U.S. Marshal. Now, uh, let's sit at a table over there, huh? Come on. I'm at your service, Marshal. Watch you sit on. Thank you. And uh, to what do I owe this honor, sir? It, uh... Isn't exactly an honor, Professor. I want you to stop putting opium in that stuff you're selling. Oh, well, come now, Marshal. Surely you don't believe Doc me. Adams has analyzed it, Professor, and either you make it harmless or I'm going to run you out of Dodge. <clears throat> yes, yes, I believe you would. Now, you're free to sell it and you're free to do all the talking you want, but that's all. I'm, I'm a lonely old man, Marshal, and I'm tired of wandering. I'll do what you say. Good. I uh, hope you don't get into trouble with your preaching about liquor, Professor. I have been fighting against drink ever since I was a youth. Oh? Well, what about opium? Isn't that just as bad? Well, I don't sell enough to do any harm, Marshal. Maybe, but why are you so strong about whiskey? When I was a child of 12, my grandfather got drunk and threw a pet owl onto a horse that was standing nearby. What? He did... And it frightened the horse into kicking an orphan boy. Broke the rim of his belly. That boy died, Marshal. Oh, oh I see. Professor Bone. Ah, Mr. Reeves. Welcome, sir. And how is your good father? Marshal, I'm glad you're here. Oh, what's the trouble, Reeves? It's here now, Professor. He's a trouble. I'll tell you. My old man, he had a bean stuck in his throat. The professor told me to give him a steam bath and then throw cold water on him. And I was doing it. But what for? Well, so as he'd catch cold and get a cough and bring up the bean. Oh, well, of all... But it didn't work, Mr. Reeves? It killed him. It what? My old man is dead. Dead? Good heavens, poor fellow. Now, I'm going to kill you, Professor. No, you're not. No, but no man can die of a mere cold, Mr. Reeves. Something must have gone wrong. Something went wrong, all right. Uh, Come on. We'll get dark and go see what this is all about. And you'll get the idea of shooting anybody out of your head, Reeves. Maybe I will. Professor Bone wasn't a normal, everyday-type citizen. But he wasn't a murderer, either. And whatever had gone wrong and killed Reeves' father couldn't be blamed entirely on him. Reeves had been a fool to follow his advice in the first place. Doc told him so, too, in as many ways as he could think of. We found the old man still lying in the steam bath Reeves had made. 
All he'd done was to dig a big hole in the ground with a fire pit in the middle and then stretch some canvas across the top for a roof. Doc climbed down into it, and after a few minutes, he came back out again. Well, Reeves, all I can figure is your father died of a heart attack. I don't believe it, Doc. That old man was strong as a bull. Well, I know that, but there's nothing else that could have caused it. How long did you have him in there, Reeves? Oh, maybe half hour, Marshal. He was having a fine time when I left him. He poured a whole jug of vinegar on them rocks. I went up to the house to get some more. Oh, wait a minute. What would you say? Uh, vinegar? Sure. Professor here said it'd help him to sweat. Wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Uh, yes, I thought so. What? It's the vinegar that killed him, Reeves. What do you mean? That's limestone you used in there, isn't it? Well, limestone is All right. You put vinegar on hot limestone, and it'll make acid gas. And that's what suffocated your pa. I I didn't tell you to use limestone, Mr. Reeves. You you can't blame me for that. No, but the vinegar was your idea, Professor, and I still say you murdered him. Now, wait a minute, Reeves. You're not being sensible. This thing was an accident, that's all. Huh? I'm not a murderer. I never hurt anybody in my life. You don't even know what you do, you old fake. Selling that slop of yours loaded with narcotics. Did you tell him to stop that, Matt? Yeah, yeah, Doc. He said he would. My medicine is as pure as the dew, gentlemen. A newborn babe could drink it. Don't let me catch you giving it to any newborn babes. I'm going to analyze it every day you're here. And I hope that won't be much longer. Oh, I'm a lonely old man, sir. The only home I have is in my wagon. Well, then go live in it somewhere else. You've caused enough trouble around here. Doc, take it easy on him. Am I to be banished from the face of the earth? Am I not a man like any other man? Do you think I have no heart, no feelings, no soul? Well, why don't you just shut up and get out of here? I want to bury my old man. I would gladly help you in that task, Mr. No, sir. No, sir, not you. Not by a long sight. You are unkind, sir. Gentlemen, I take my leave of you. Good day. For some reason, the three of us stood there in silence and watched Professor Bone walk away. He stopped once and glanced back at us for a moment, then went on. Later, when we got back to Front Street, his wagon was gone, and we figured probably that'd be the last that we'd see of him. Dodge was fairly quiet that night. And when somebody reported seeing a fire of some kind out on the prairie, I decided I might as well ride out and have a look. There's no flames left, Mr. Dillon. I guess it must be all burned out. I don't remember a house of any kind around here. I wonder what it was. Well, maybe just a prairie fire that didn't get really started. Yeah. Oh, there's something, Chester. Over there. Yeah. I can see a few coals. Oh. Probably. 
It's a wagon, Mr. Dillon. It's all burned up. That's Professor Bones' wagon, Chester. I golly, see you're right. That's his horse, too. Professor! Professor Bone? Now, let's take a look here. Where in the world could he be, Mr. Dillon? I don't know, Chester. Uh, uh, look out now. I'm going to move some of this. Yeah, I'll help you. Right there. Yeah. You think that's a professor? I'm afraid so, Chester. Poor old fella. He must have been asleep and his wagon caught fire. Maybe. Funny he couldn't get out, though. Unless he was drunk or something. Professor Bone didn't drink, Chester. That's right, I forgot. He sure didn't. Say... You think maybe somebody did this, Mr. Dillon? Well, he had two or three men pretty mad at him. Yeah, or, or maybe it was Indians. Oh, not this close to Dodge. No. No, I guess not. I don't know, Chester. A lot of things can happen to people who get too lonely. Now, come on, let's get out of here. We'll take care of him in the morning. of Norman MacDonald stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were John Daner, Barney Phillips, Paul Dubov, and Lawrence Dobkin. Parley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Ken Peters speaking. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, Avengers a killing during his fight to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. Listen next week at this time when Gunsmoke will be brought to you by Sugar Crinkles, the sugar rice treat that's just right sweet. Well, there you have it as originally heard back on the 14th of November in 1953 on CBS. That was Gunsmoke. And the name of that episode was Professor Loot Bone. And that is one of the uh, the fun episodes of Gunsmoke. And, of course, we'll have another one next week. Ah, uh, yeah. I remember that day. I remember it well. I do. I was working behind a bar, and it was kind of a quiet day. It was an afternoon, you know. And I was just 
just standing there at the bar. Nobody was at the bar. There was a couple people out at the tables, and I was just cleaning out some glasses there, stacking them up. I just washed them, you know, and, and that's when this little guy, this little guy came in the door. I'd never seen him before. Nobody, nobody'd seen him before. He was, he was a stranger to town. And he slowly walked up to the bar, and he asked me for a, a slug of gin. So I said, sure. Just guessing, I'd say he's maybe five foot two, five foot three. And it sounded like he's from Texas. He had a soft voice, but he had that Texas drawl. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And uh, I, got, I got talking to him. I said, howdy, you know, welcome to town, stranger. You're new here, aren't you? And he said, yeah. He says, I, I'm looking for looking for work. He says, I, I need some work. I'm, I'm headed out to the west. So I asked him what he did. He says, oh, I could do just about any kind of work. He says, when it comes to horses, he says, I, I could ride with the best of them. You know, I was looking at the man's eyes as he was talking to me. and He, he had sad eyes. He had blue eyes. Oh, they were just real shiny. But they were, they were sad, you know. Eyes like that come from needing a friend. But anyway, so he was telling me uh, that he would like to work for the winter, and I was just about to tell him about a feller that had a ranch out on the west side of town that did a lot of hiring of uh, guys that came through town, cowboys, and about just as I was starting to tell him, all of a sudden the door came open, and this big man walked in. He was a big man, and I tell you right away, right now, I knew that he was trouble. Just from the way he comes stomping in there. And he stood down at the other end of the bar and he says, Hey, leave Shorty alone there. He says, come and give a drink to a real man. Well, you know, I didn't even want to wait on him. But, of course, he was so big. Naturally, I was going to go down there. But I, I felt bad for the little man. And when I looked at him, all of a sudden, I noticed that his eyes got real narrow. The friendly smile disappeared from his face. And he, he looked like he hated this man. I mean to tell you, this look of just absolute hatred came over him. But the big man, he just, he wouldn't let up. And he just continued to mock that poor little man. And, and he told me, he says, if you're going to wait on him down there, why don't you go get him a couple glasses of milk? Maybe that'll help him grow. And he started laughing. Well, the little man backed away from the bar. And he stood and he turned and looked at that big man. Waited until it was quiet. And he said, Mister, trouble's something I tried to avoid. But if you want it, you're going to get it. Because, cowboy, we're both packing guns. And his hand was already positioned, you know, right down at his side and his feet were spread there on the floor. And it was plain that he was ready. He says, don't you ever call me Shorty. You call me Mr. Shorty. If you don't, you're going to be dead. All the drinking stopped. It got so quiet you could actually hear the clock ticking on the wall there. I mean, real quiet. The big man finally stepped out. He kind of cussed under his breath, and he snarled a little bit. And he looked at that little man. He says, I don't call nobody mister. And he went for his gun. Well, I mean to tell you, I ain't never seen anything like it. 
That little man's hands were just like lightning, and he had that six-shooter out, put a bullet right through that big man's chest before the big man could even clear leather. Oh, I've never seen anything like it, never seen anyone as fast as that. Well, that, that little man, he kind of shook his head, and as he put his gun back in his holster, he looked at me, and he almost had a tear in his eye. He says, this happens to me every place I go. It's best I be leaving. Best I be moving on. And he stepped over that big man laying dead there on the floor and he was out the door. I never even got his name. Never even got his name. We've never seen him again. But I'll tell you what, if he ever walks back in my bar, <laughs> I'm going to say, hello, Mr. Shorty, my good friend. Nobody knew where he came from. They only knew he came in. Slowly he walked to the end of the bar and he ordered up one slug of gin. I could see that he wasn't a large man I could tell that he wasn't too tall I judged him to be about five foot three And his voice was a soft Texas drawl Said he was needing some wages Before he could ride for the West Said he could do most all kind of work Said he could ride with the best there in his blue eyes was sadness That comes from the need of a friend And though he tried, he still couldn't hide The loneliness there deep within Said he would work through the winter For thirty a month at his board I started to say where he might land a job When a fella came in through the door I could tell he was looking for trouble For the way that he came stomping in He told me to leave Shorty there by himself Come down and wait on a man The eyes of the little man narrowed The smile disappeared from his face Gone was the friendliness that I had seen And a wild look of hate but the big one continued to mock him And he told me that I'd better go Find him a couple of glasses of milk Then maybe Shorty would grow When the little man spoke there was stillness He made sure that everyone heard Slowly he stepped away from the bar And I still remember these words Oh, it's plain that you're looking for trouble Troubles would I try to shun If that's what you want, then that's what you'll get Cause cowboy were both packing guns His hand was already positioned His feet wide apart on the floor I hadn't noticed that there on his hip Was a short barrel bat 44 it was plain he was ready and waiting 
He leaned a bit forward and said When you call me shorty, say mister my friend Maybe you'd rather be dead In the room was a terrible silence As the big one stepped out on the floor All drinking stopped and the tick of the clock Said death would wait ten seconds more He cursed once or twice in a whisper And he said with a snarl on his lips Nobody's mister to me, little man And he grabbed for the gun on his hip But the little man's hand was like lightning The bat 44 was the same 44 spoke and he said let him smoke 17 inches of flame Oh, the big one had never cleared leather Beaten before he could start A little round hole had appeared on his shirt The bullet went clear through his heart The little man stood there a moment Then holstered the bad 44 It's always this way, so I never stay Slowly he walked out the door Nobody knew where he came from They won't forget he came by They won't forget how a 44 gun One night made the difference in size As for me I'll remember the sadness Shown in the eyes of the man If we meet someday you can bet I will say That it's me Mr. Shorty your That's going to kick things in the head for another week. Don't worry, we'll be back in two weeks. We'll do it all over again. We'll have a whole new slate of shows. All right, everybody, this is Bob Brew. I'm so glad you stopped by, and I'm so glad you met me.